It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to monday.com. This is Deconstructed. I'm Ryan Grimm. At the beginning of the classic novel The Count of Monte Cristo, the hero, Edmond Dante, is a young man and the world is his oyster. He's engaged to be married, well-loved in the community, successful professionally, yet in spite of his own general innocence, he's brought low by political intrigue and locked away in prison for life. But he escapes and spends the rest of the book solving the mystery of how he was put away and exacting the most satisfying revenge, blow by blow. A contemporary version of the Alexander Dumas masterpiece played out over the last decade in New Mexico. In 2008, Eric Griego knocked out a longtime establishment Democrat to win a New Mexico state Senate seat and went about trying to change the system from the inside. Instead, he was chewed up and spit out by the state's democratic machinery. In 2012, he eyed an exit strategy, a run for an open U.S. House seat. Only one congressional primary in New Mexico promises to have some drama. The race on the Democrat side to replace Representative Martin Heinrich. Also eyeing that seat was Marty Chavez, a local mayor. Chavez points to his three terms as mayor. There are candidates that talk and there are candidates that do. A direct jab at his opponent, Eric Riego. And Michelle Lujan Grisham, a rising star in the party establishment from a centuries-old political dynasty. Maybe it's because she can trace her heritage back 12 generations. But whatever the reason, Michelle Lujan Grisham understands New Mexico's values. The battle between insurgent House challengers and establishment Democrats first got national attention in 2018 when the four members of the squad swept their way to office. But that fight had been bubbling for years, and this race was an early harbinger. National progressive groups rallied behind Griego and also zeroed in on another Democratic primary in Congress, where progressive Lori Saldana was running against the far more conservative Democrat Scott Peters in California. I covered this moment in a chapter of my book, We've Got People, which sketches the fight within the Democratic Party from Jesse Jackson's presidential campaigns in the 1980s up to today. The problem the left had, though, was that Emily's List, which backs pro-choice women candidates, was going to weigh in on both races. So the heads of the progressive infrastructure suggested they de-conflict. They understood, they said, that Emily's List wanted to endorse both women. But if they only decided to put major resources into one of those races, could they please make it the progressive one and back Saldana so that everybody would be aligned? Emily's List did decide, in the end, to only put resources behind one candidate. But they ignored Saldana and threw all their weight behind Luhan Grisham, running a campaign that effectively branded Griego as a criminal. She ended up winning by just over 2,000 votes with Chavez third. Peters edged out Saldana by 719 votes. Two corporate Democrats had been elected where a more unified operation could easily have elected two progressives. Peters is now a leader of the New Democrat Coalition, the faction of pro-Wall Street Democrats in Congress. Luhan Grisham is governor of New Mexico, and she was on Joe Biden's shortlist for vice president last year. Griego, though, did not go quietly. He started organizing the disparate elements of the New Mexico left, realizing that the state Democratic Party wouldn't change without massive outside pressure. 
As political director for the New Mexico Working Families Party, he and a coalition of allies began recruiting and backing candidates. The first signs of real success came in 2018, followed by a major breakthrough in 2020. Now, I already spoiled the ending of The Count of Monte Cristo, and I don't want to spoil this story before we speak to Eric Griego, who joins us in a moment. But first, we're trying something new this week. To support this show, we have a new offer for listeners who become a member of Deconstructed. If you make a contribution of any amount, we'll send you a signed copy of my book that I mentioned earlier, We've Got People. To make that happen, just go to theintercept.com slash give for the details. That's theintercept.com slash give. Okay, now on to our interview with Eric Griego. Eric Griego, welcome to Deconstructed. Thanks for having me. So Eric, you and I spoke uh, several years ago because I was interviewing you for my book about the Democratic Party, the fighting within it. And in 2012, you were involved in a, in a chapter of that. Can you set the scene a little bit for people? How was it that you came to run in a Democratic primary for Congress? I think it was a series of bad decisions, actually. Um, <laughs> you know, uh, I had been in politics for a while. I, would, I had been a kind of an insurgent progressive Democrat. I ran against an incumbent kind of developer-owned city councilwoman for the Albuquerque City mm -hmm. Council. And, and uh, that was my first race, and I won that. And, you know, really early on, became clear to me that I was out of step with the Democratic Party. I had to take on the leadership, including the governor at the time and the attorney general at mm -hmm. the time and the district attorney. All, of them were, all Democrats. All of them were Democrats. All of them were protecting a super corrupt mayor named Marty Chavez, who's kind of a was a darling of the Clintons and still is, is happens to be our national committeeman now for the, for the Democratic mm -hmm. Party in New Mexico while he was a lobbyist for Verizon fighting net neutrality. You know, so that's, that's the kind mm -hmm. of Democrat mm -hmm. he was. Still considered an elder in the Democratic Party here in New Mexico. So, yeah, I learned a really hard lesson early on that if you took on mainstream corporate or even corrupt Democrats, that the Democratic Party establishment often stood with them. I ended up running against that mayor in the following cycle and got, got destroyed because <laughs> he had very strong bipartisan support. Republicans preferred him. I beat the Republican. I came in second, but he had a coalition mm -hmm. of sort of middle-of-the-road Democrats and, and Republicans who supported him. I then took a couple of years off and did some community development work, economic development work. And then I decided to run for the state Senate against a, another entrenched legislator. So I ran against him and beat him in a primary. So that was the second time I had taken out sort of a pretty powerful mm -hmm. Democratic establishment candidate. So anyway, that was sort of my, my brand, right? That was my philosophy. That's what I did. I mean, I just felt like we had to hold Democrats accountable. Right. Because of that work and also in my work in the legislature, I had a very difficult time in the state Senate because I had questioned some of the decisions of our leadership. We had a corporate coalition that was in de facto coalition with the Republicans in the state Senate and blocking all sorts of progressive legislation. Mm -hmm. But they were very powerful, and so they made my life very, very difficult. I passed a few bills, but I didn't get very much actually passed. I got, did a lot of behind-the-scenes work, but they sort of made an example of me, and they said, look, uh, we're going to teach you what sort of disloyal Democrats, this is what happens if you question the leadership, if you question the mm -hmm. power of the establishment. All right, they have to, because you, you, can't, you can't have examples of insurgents winning. No, absolutely. No. Because then oh. that could inspire other people. Oh, yeah, they were very proud of saying to folks, like, this is what happens. They sort of, you know, they sort of held me up as an example of what not to do. And so even some of my, we had a little mini progressive wave that year of state senators. Mm-hmm. And even my colleagues like saw what happened to me and said, like, I don't want to do that. So they kind of 
I have to say they they moderated their positions a lot, and I I became sort of the mm-hmm. very much the lightning lightning rod in the state senate. Much to their pleasure and delight, I decided to run for Congress in 2012 instead of running for for reelection. In part because it was an open seat, and in part because, frankly, one of the other consequences of my work to question the dominant culture of the of Democratic establishment, corporate establishment, the Senate was we were going through redistricting in 2012 when I was running and they conveniently mm-hmm. paired me with another progressive for my mm-hmm. Senate seat. So that was the other consequence. Let them fight. Had I not run for Congress, I would have had to run against essentially my closest progressive ally in the state Senate, who's now my state senator, by the way. Mm-hmm. Um, so it was, it was by mutual agreement I ran for Congress instead. It is really the only major race with some major suspense. Three well-known Democrats duking it out in the congressional contest here in the Albuquerque area for their party's nod. So the two challengers, ironically, one of them was the former mayor who I had lost to, uh, Marty Chavez. Mm -hmm. The two didn't agree on much when Griego was a city councilor during Chavez's administration. Griego says that's because Chavez often sided with the Republicans on key issues. And then the woman who ultimately won that seat is now our governor, Michelle Lujan Grisham. Grisham says she's the only one who can reach across the aisle to help end gridlock in Washington. I'm willing to work with anyone who is clear about making a quality of life difference for my constituents. Both of whom ran as moderates, right? She would not commit to Medicare for all. Right. Wouldn't commit to a $15 minimum wage. Lots of support from corporate entities. And I had uh, a coalition of progressive groups supporting me and really ran as an unab- unabashed, unapologetic progressive in that primary. And, uh, and I lost. <laughs> right. Narrowly, but I lost. I was far more progressive, but yet a lot of groups who really primarily wanted to see a woman in Congress uh, and a much more moderate mm-hmm. person, frankly. It wasn't just that she was a woman. She was a lot more moderate. And so they uh, they essentially got together and, and helped fund some some pretty egregious attack ads on me. The gloves are off. The race for the Democratic bid to replace Congressman Martin Heinrich is getting nasty. Right. They, they made you out to be a thug, basically. Yeah. I'm Michelle Lujan Grisham, and I approve this message. Eric Griego's super PAC is lying about Michelle Lujan Grisham to hide his own record of breaking the law. And there was a, a huge dog whistle, I got to say. Uh, you know, we talk about dog mm-hmm. whistles. That was not a popular term in the in the political vernacular in New Mexico, at least at the time. But the ad that really was the one that when we saw my, you know, my tracking polls drop by 10 points is a is a darkened version of my face with the 20, 20-year-old DUI when I was in my early 30s, paired with, you know, some... Uh, traffic tickets I hadn't paid on time, which, you know, was stupid on my part. Authorities issued 11 arrest warrants for Griego, including for driving without insurance or registration. Three warrants while Griego served on the city council. A judge even issued a warrant for an accident on the grounds of the Capitol while Griego served in the state Senate. Does Griego think he's above the law? New Mexico can do better. But, you know, kind of this whole, like, brown dude from the bad side of town, you know, and and it worked. A recent journal poll shows it's a two-person race to the finish between Griego and Grisham. And in the end, I lost by, you know, five percentage points uh, in the last, literally the last two weeks of the campaign, so. It wasn't until a little after midnight when we knew for sure that Michelle Lujan Grisham beat Eric Griego in the primary 
40 to 35 percent. Now, this was an expensive and an ugly race, and now that it's over, Ms. Luhan Grisham can focus on her campaign message, getting people back to work. You know, the rest is history. Uh, the, the governor now, gov now Governor Michelle Luhan Grisham, was, as many folks know, was considered for the cabinet and mm -hmm. um, is very much seen as a, as a power player in democratic politics. So. And it's such an interesting irony uh, that when she is considered uh, for cabinet positions, when she's kicked around for, you know, vice president, what you often hear is it would be an amazing, it'd be amazing to have a brown woman in that job. And when, when you hear how, uh, you know, she ended up winning her first race for Congress, she, she won by being the less brown candidate, by saying that the other candidate was, is too brown, to then, you know, eight, 10 years later, be talked about as somebody who should be elevated to, you know, a higher position because of her own ethnicity is, is quite an extraordinary irony. Yeah, it was it was clearly uh, a political. Again, I've had very very many uh, political teachers, and I would say uh, Marty Chavez was my first one to, that showed me that it didn't matter how corrupt you were uh, if you had the right relationships in the Democratic establishment mm -hmm. that you could survive. That he survived that scandal, pretty major scandal. I want to jump in here for a moment to give some context to Griego's allegation of corruption against Chavez. In 2002, Chavez agreed to pay back money raised from contractors doing business with the city, saying that while he hadn't broken any laws, he recognized there was a conflict of interest. In 2003, New Mexico's Ethics and Campaign Practices Committee concluded that Chavez, as mayor of Albuquerque, had broken city rules by accepting gifts, by exceeding campaign contribution limits, and by failing to report campaign contributions. He was acquitted of other allegations, namely that he had also broken campaign finance rules in a run for governor and that he had misused public assets for his own political gain. Another scandal involving a friend he traveled with dogged him during his congressional campaign. I asked Chavez if he wanted to respond to Griego and he told me this, quote, My only real memory of Mr. Griego is that his brief tenures as a city councilor and state senator were inconsequential. I do recall during our mayoral race that he had multiple arrest warrants out for him for failure to obey court orders and a record of driving while intoxicated in Texas. The name calling was always a regrettable part of his modus operandi, and that apparently remains unchanged. I do wish him well. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. In the case of the governor, it didn't matter that I was a fellow Democrat. In fact, somebody who had been a political ally of hers in the past, I helped her when she ran for county commission. 
when it came to politics that all bets were off. Right. And so, but, but you raise a good point, you know, because this is, this is all coming back up. And uh, I don't know if you saw there was an Axios article that uh, a guy named Russell Contreras wrote about the racial undertones of the seat, right? This is a majority-minority mm-hmm. district here in CD1 at Albuquerque. And we just nominated a white woman who, you know, arguably is progressive-leaning, uh, very competent, very smart. But there were five, there were five pretty progressive people of color running, two uh, LGBTQ, openly gay, Hispanic men, Latino mm-hmm. men, uh, a Native American progressive woman, three formidable Hispanic women. And it was, again, a lesson in, in sort of the race politics, unfortunately, in this district, which is which is ultimately uh, white voters in, in this district still have a, a much stronger, uh, in terms of turnout, in terms of power, in terms of mm-hmm. fundraising, much, much bigger effect on who gets the nomination. And it happened again. Right, and this wasn't a primary. This was almost literally a smoky room decision. I mean. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. But same dynamic. So now you've moved to the Working Families Party, which yep. in New York runs in a fusion system. And I think most people are familiar with the WFP through that, that you can run on both ballots. What's the WFP's history in, in New Mexico and, and what are the ballot access rules there? Yeah, it's a great question. So we um, we established in, in, in 2016, so it's been about five years. Um, and, you know, we really established ourselves in electoral presence within the Democratic Party. So we really tried to get the most progressive Democratic candidates in state legislative races and other races uh, out of the primaries and then try to get them elected. I had actually tried when I was in the state Senate to, to sponsor a fusion bill. To, mm-hmm. uh, so uh, the New York style of fusion where you could vote for more than one candidate, more than more than one party, a candidate under more than one party line. So, you uh, you know, as a Democrat and as a working families party member. So we did that was not mm-hmm. allowed under New Mexico election law. So I sponsored legislation, was dead on arrival. I mean, it, didn't, it literally did not make it out of its first committee. This is 2012. It had been sponsored previously, same outcome by, by someone else uh, in 2007, never made it out of its first committee. So the forces in the Democratic Party primarily, it wasn't even the Republicans, it was mostly the Democrats and, and, and mainline mainstream Democrats just didn't want to see it. So what we've done here in New Mexico since 2016 is we've really tried to change the makeup of the Democratic mm-hmm. Party by really going all in for prime in primaries for more progressive members and taking out the kind of establishment corrupt corporate Democrats that I always ran against as a elected official, but also that we have always targeted since WP's been on the ground here. So the so our first year we just helped a couple of good a good progressives in the primary. Uh, the biggest thing we did is in 2018 we took on uh, a state house corporations committee chairwoman who was was corrupt as the day was long and really in line with you know bought and paid for by payday lenders and uh, private prisons, oil and gas, you know, you name it, the who's who of corporate entities. And we found a candidate, um, we recruited a candidate uh, who took mm-hmm. her on and beat her in the primary um, and then got elected and still holds the seat and has been a pretty progressive member of the state legislature. Everybody said, you're crazy, like you'll never take this woman out. Um, she was powerful. She was uh, had three times the mm-hmm. money our candidate had, but we, that was our first major victory. And that was the that was really the brand for WPA New Mexico. It's like, we're going to take out these really terrible Democrats. Um, and then in, 20, uh, in 2020, um, we did two things. Um, we uh, helped recruit uh, several candidates to take on this corporate, we called them the, the Mexico, Cor- the, the Corporate Democrat Coalition. It was modeled very mm-hmm. much on the, on the IDC in New York, uh, sort of a small group of really conservative pro-oil and gas, pro-corporate state senators who really control the state Senate, despite the Democrats having a, 
a pretty formidable majority. Right, and you had served in the state senate, so you kind of understood the choke points. Did you did you go after incumbents who were not just bad, but also sat at those veto points? Yes, that's <laughs> that's who I chose. Like there were a lot of people we ended up mm-hmm. helping defeat, but the two most important were the two people who hearkening back to my own state senate career, who I had watched in action and, and watched. And this is mm-hmm. the part when you're actually an insider, when you're elected official, you can see the dynamic from the inside, that in Senate caucus meetings were so detrimental to, to us moving the progressive mm-hmm. agenda because they held a lot of power. One of them was the pro tem of the Senate, and one of them was the chair of the finance committee, which is the most powerful committee, all money bills, anything with a price tag on it that went through that committee, which is 90% of the legislation. Mm-hmm. So. So those two were very much the top of our list. They were also two of the most powerful people in the state Senate. But we found challengers, uh, insurgent challengers in both cases. So we got involved early. We helped recruit those folks. We helped uh, support them. And we got them both through primaries. And one of them was a pretty Democratic seat. The other one was a swing seat. So we ended up losing mm-hmm. ST35 in the south, southern part of New Mexico. It was sort of a, a swing district. There was a Mexican-American uh, woman named Naomi Martinez Parra, who's just a fierce, like, mm-hmm. just took on took on this really powerful entrenched Democrat, beat him in the primary, and but then lost fa- in the general that, because and you lost in the general. But that's a that's a fascinating moment though, because even though you replaced a Democrat with a Republican, you replaced an extraordinarily powerful Democrat who was in the way of progress with a maybe a worse Republican, but someone who's not in the way. Yeah, absolutely. Like you, you didn't you didn't lose the majority, right? No, no, we ended up actually picking up one seat, but we lost that seat and we lost another seat mm-hmm. to Republicans and another seat that we played in. But, I, but And some folks are like, you know, wh- that's crazy. Like, it's all about the numbers. It's all about having a majority. If you want to pass some of these bills, you got to have more votes. You know, you got to count your votes. And my view has always been if you have to negotiate in your own caucus on most legislation and they're working more as much with the Republicans there are working with you, like that's not a good theory of change to really move strong, progressive, democratic legislation. Right. So. We knew that was a high probability that we would lose the seat. We also knew that it would change the dynamics of the caucus because, again, having sat in those caucuses, this is, you know, behind closed doors when people, when the real negotiations mm-hmm. are happening, this particular member of the Senate, it, people lived in fear of him because if you wanted to get anything passed as a state senator so that you could get reelected, so that your constituents like you, so that you could run for the next thing, you had to go through his committee. And so you, it was a, an absolute mm-hmm. death wish to take him on, which I, I learned the hard <laughs> yeah. way. But I got to tell you, when, when we took him out and he lost, the dynamics, and I've heard this from several former and colleagues and people who helped get elected, like the dynamics in the caucus are just day and night. Now, because people don't live in fear of somebody essentially ruining their political career because they, they have the audacity to say, hey, why aren't you letting this healthcare funding bill through your committee, right? So- we lost that seat in the general, but we ended up picking up a couple of other seats in the general. We were Democrats, much more progressively than Democrats, defeated Republicans here in the Albuquerque area. So we more than made up mm-hmm. for it. And all of this is a, a fun story, and it's nice to see people get their comeuppance, but it doesn't really matter to people on the ground unless it translates into actual legislation. So the new legislature gets got sworn in this year, and uh, how did it go? Well, thankfully, they delivered, <laughs> not on everything, uh, but on, on an amazing amount of progressive <laughs> legislation. So after 11 years of trying to pass this sort of transformational investment in early childhood, New Mexico has the worst outcome for kids, especially young kids in the country. And we had been trying for 11 years. It was a bill that I initially helped write. Um, 
to, to fund, we have this massive uh, permanent fund that, that's produced in part from oil and gas leases, $22 billion, which is one of the largest in the world, but mm-hmm. it's about three times the size of our general fund. But we just wouldn't touch it because the crew that I just mentioned, we took out, wouldn't, it was sacrosanct. Like mm-hmm. we could not touch this essential savings account, right? So the first indication that we had done something right by electing all these much more progressive leaning state senators is we passed this constitutional amendment uh, after 11 tries. This is the 11th year we had run it. And every year, Smith and the corporate Dems had killed it. Mm-hmm. So that'll be on the ballot next year. It's got overwhelming public support in both Republicans and Democrats. And it'll, it'll mean, literally, it'll mean about 25 to 50,000 new kids in New Mexico will have access to early childhood when they never did. We passed what will be the most rigorous paid sick leave law in the country that covers all workers, no carve-outs for, for, for business size, and, and provides eight mm-hmm. days of paid sick leave a year. It doesn't, it doesn't kick until next year. That was the compromise, but it is still it will be one of the toughest laws in the books. That would have never made it out with under the old crew. How long had, that, how long had people been pushing that? Paid sick leave, honestly, um, paid sick leave. it had never been a serious effort, to be honest with you, because there was just so little support. It was anathema to the corporate leadership. Right. That's the other interesting function of these veto points being corked up. People say, you know, why bother? You know, why, why push for anything? Because we know it's just going get, to get bottled up here. Did you see that phenomenon across the state? People realizing, wait a minute, if we put some energy on the field here, we could actually, you know, move the ball. Yeah, I think that that motivated a lot of more progressive-leaning Democratic voters. I think there were people who were just so incredibly disillusioned that, like, it didn't matter. We were never going to get rid of a few of these folks. They were so entrenched. And I have to say it was, a, it, was a, it was a credit to and it was a factor of the growth of sort of the progressive base here in New Mexico. A lot of grassroots groups passed the early childhood constitution amendment. We passed this incredible paid sick leave bill. We passed can- cannabis legalization. So what, what was the, what, what are the details of your weed legalization bill? Yeah. So uh, they, that was sort of the dying gasp of, of the few kind of, <laughs> the few members of that coalition who survived. Even though we cleaned house, so to speak, there were still some remnants Three or four of these folks who were on the, I'll call them on the fringe of the corporate coalition, right? They were not full-fledged members. They were sort of like pledges, I guess you'd say. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> they really made it uh, They made it tough for, for that bill. So the governor got a lot of pressure, not just from progressive, but all sorts of folks. And she said, you know, we gotta, we're going to do a special session. So she called them all back and they were able to pass it, you know, in two days and, um, uh, it was pretty remarkable to see that happen, right? And it would not have happened if had, you know, the, the previous the previous mm-hmm. establishment corporate Dems, you know, conservative Dems were there. What about COVID relief? I, I understand New Mexico went, went above what a lot of other states were able to do for people. Yeah, you know, one of the themes with this corporate coalition is they really, their brand was austerity, austerity, austerity. They were the keepers of a mm-hmm. fiscally sound state budget, right? And one of the things in the primary that we emphasize is now is not the time for austerity. Now is the time to invest in healthcare and invest in people. And, and so it really played out in the primaries right in the middle of COVID. But coming out of that and coming out of the election, I think the Democrats and the governor herself, who, who, who viewed herself as a kind of a fiscal conservative herself, there was a lot of pressure to really get not just get the federal money out the door, but to really reinvest a lot more state funding 
on tax policy, on using federal and state funding to really make sure we were bolstering working folks, frontline workers, essential workers. I think those were all policies that would have had a much rougher road, if a road at all, had we had that deal Mm -hmm. still in place. We were able to pass a bill called the New Mexico Civil Rights Act that ends qualified immunity for not just law enforcement, but for a lot of other frontline sort of public officials, right? You know, corrections officers and a lot of others. That would have never, ever, ever made it out. The only low light I will say is we did not get a lot done, in my opinion, on the the environment. We got a couple of Mm -hmm. important, but really, I think, largely symbolic bills passed. But I will, the one thing that has not changed, if anything, has gotten grown stronger is the, is the influence of oil and gas in New Mexico. Now, how, badly, how badly were you beaten by the oil and gas industry? Like a, a real shellacking? I think it was shellacking for sure, yeah. There were two or three symbolic victories. I mean, we passed a kind of a climate, a just transition task force that's going to force our economic development department to think about something beyond oil and gas, right? So what's the next economy look like? But it's really just a task force, right? It, you know, there's something called produced water, which is a really toxic byproduct of fracking in New Mexico that uh, that didn't go anywhere because of not just Republicans but Democrats who killed that bill. Uh, there was a Green Amendment that that is being sponsored in some states around the country that would put in the Constitution a, a kind of an environmental green right, right, a cause of action for folks to be able to say, like, you know, you're really, you know, you're really uh, violating some basic environmental rights that we have here. That was that was a bipartisan killed by bipartisan vote there was um uh we did get a couple uh, we did get a couple of minor victories so we got community solar passed which was a the, the public utilities were fighting feels like a no-brainer in new mexico to have solar yeah although it's yeah, a no-brainer right. in florida too and texas but you don't have it there one either think, one would think so with the the t- with the grip that the oil and gas industry has on the party what's the strategy for countering that for loosening it what is the kind of countervailing power that exists in the state that could push back on oil and gas? You know, um, I feel like a lot of folks feel mm-hmm. pretty powerless at this point on that particular issue. And the reason is, I'm sure you're familiar with the resource curse. Like we're a state that depends heavily, mm-hmm. heavily on oil and gas and natural gas and fracking. Right, it's, fun- um, it's funding your early childhood. Yeah, exactly. So they not only does it fund our childhood, it funds a quarter of our K-12 system. We don't fund our K-12 system through property taxes like most states do. We fund it through the general fund. And a, a, hmm. a quarter of that, almost $3 billion, you know, almost you know, almost a quarter of the whole budget comes from revenues that come from mm-hmm. oil and gas leases and that permanent fund. So um, it's really, really hard, even if you're a, a super progressive Democrat who cares about the environment. Um, you find yourself really up against some very powerful forces. And, you know, sometimes you're going up against, you know, unions who support the investment that the oil and gas represents. Mm-hmm. And also there's it, this breaks along racial and socioeconomic lines, right? So who works in the oil fields? You know, a lot of the frontline workers are immigrants, people of color, a lot of native folks mm-hmm. who are dependent on some of the fossil fuel industry, certainly the coal industry. A lot of them work in the uranium industry. I'm sure you know the history of, of the how terrible the uranium industry has been for Native Americans, and it's been a sort of employment for a lot of them. So now the conversation is really about how do we get more people interested and elected who get that it's an imperative, not just a moral kind of climate imperative, it's an economic imperative. We've got to diversify our economy. So what's next electorally in, in 2022 for this this coalition now that they've kind of tasted the fruit of some victory? That's a great question. I think I think everybody's thinking about accountability. So I mentioned those the corporate Dems ple- pledges, right? They're 
there's still two or three of them who in this vacuum that was created by the folks that we kicked out. But we also lost. I mean, we didn't win every race. But in 2022, all of our statewide race, uh, uh, offices are up, and including the governor's race, and all of the state House members. So what we will likely do is protect several of the House members who really stepped up. There are a few who were very disappointing who we're going to try to probably primary. Mm-hmm. I do think there's a couple of statewide offices that we're going to have to really take a hard look at and see if we can we can move those to the left a little bit. Honestly, I think the big battle for us is going to be in 2024. That's when we have the next round of state Senate elections, but also uh, before then, local races. So there's, you know, we also have county races. We're never going to have really tested, loyal folks, you know, credible folks that we can trust unless we elect city councilors and county commissioners who then go on to higher office, right? So that's that's part of the pipeline. And last question, finally, just personally, you know, what's this journey been like for you to to experience the state Senate from the inside, to be kind of chewed up and spit out, and then to kind of come back with an army behind you and try to retake the place? You know, it's been incredibly gratifying. I mean, uh, somebody said, uh, you know, and I don't like to use this phrase, but I, but I, do, I do find it ironic. You know, revenge is, is a dish best served cold. You know, it was 10 years ago that I had to watch all this, not just my legislation, but all this great legislation and colleagues who just went to the mat, just get destroyed by this coalition of, of corporate Dems, you know, and a generate literally a generation of kids who just could have been invested and in, just go by the wayside. A lot of like casualties, mm-hmm. you know, collateral damage in this political ideological fight that had that went on within the Democratic Party. So it's been wonderful to watch, not just in the state Senate, but I have to say in this congressional seat where I ran and, and everybody was couldn't wait to rush to the middle and say, you know, this is a moderate district. Mm-hmm. To see this year, this very election that we're in right now, everybody fighting to see who the most progressive is. Mm-hmm. All, they've all endorsed the Green New Deal. They've all endorsed a $50 million uh, minimum wage. They've all endorsed universal paid sick leave. They've mm-hmm. all endorsed Medicare for all. So... It's been amazing to see the transformation of the state, right? And I look, I played a small role. There's a lot of people who've been at this longer than me, but I got to say, to be in the middle of it and to be able to say, you know, <laughs> this is worth it. It's there. There is value in being on the outside, right? There is value. It's great to be have a vote and to be in the middle of the political mix and you know the scrum there in the Senate. But I got to say, it's been incredibly gratifying to to help elect some really good, smart, progressive people who have a who have a, a moral compass. And, you know, it's also been good to, for them to realize that if they, they become a creature of that system, that their, their, their next could be on the line too next cycle. There is no, mm-hmm. there is no immunity from accountability, you know, and, and now they all see it. And I, I, I think it's already changed behavior. I think it already has. Quite a ride. Thanks for sharing it with us. Thanks for, for joining us, Eric. Thank you. It's been my pleasure, Ryan. That was Eric Griego. And that's our show. Once again, if you head to theintercept.com slash give and make a donation of any amount to support the show, you'll get a signed copy of my book, We've Got People. That's theintercept.com slash give. Deconstructed is a production of First Look Media and The Intercept. Our producer is Zach Young. Laura Flynn is our supervising producer. The show was mixed by Brian Pugh. Our theme music was composed by Bart Warshaw. Betsy Reed is The Intercept's editor-in-chief. If you haven't already, please subscribe to the show so you can hear it every week. If you're subscribed already, please do leave us a rating or review. It helps people find the show. 
And if you want to give us feedback, email us at podcasts at theintercept.com. Thanks so much. See you next week. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare tri-term medical plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare tri-term medical plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at uh1.com.